everyone. Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and I want you to think back for just a second about the early days of COVID. It was a scary time. To try and stop the infection from spreading, the government responded by mandating schools and businesses to close. They ordered curfew, shelter in place, stay-at-home orders. And we all had to get on board too, right? Self-monitoring and self-quarantine. Because you could be spreading it and not even know. But what if... What if the health department and the police showed up at your home and said, we think you're spreading COVID and you need to come with us? Absolutely no one would stand for that, right? Well, in the 19th century, government officials had started to realize that public health was a thing they needed to be concerned with. Germ theory had started to take root and people were being asked to adopt all sorts of cleanliness practices that no one had thought twice about before. So they were kind of starting to figure out the why, but what to do about it was still not really fully baked. Because in 1906, the health department and police did show up at someone's door and take them away and force them to quarantine for a cumulative 26 years on an island in the East River in New York City. This is the story of Mary Mallon, otherwise known as Typhoid Mary. But first, a Victorian society tip. In the earlier part of the 19th century, miasma theory was the prevailing theory of how disease was spread. Miasma is a Greek word that translates to pollution, and in the sense that Victorians used it, it meant poisonous vapor or mist filled with particles from decomposing plant or animal matter that cause sickness. Sounds right. Why not? Diseases were not so much passed between people as they were acquired by being in places with bad or unclean air, and it was more dangerous at night. Here is how the experts recommended to protect yourself. In summer or autumn, it is right to let down the sash or otherwise close up the windows before we go to sleep. Two effects result from this. First, the exclusion of bad air or the poison which produces autumnal fever. Second, the exclusion of moisture which in the latter part of the night often chills the body. Separately, on the matter of personal hygiene, For a warm bath, the water should be from 93 to 98 degrees of heat. Baths should be taken four hours after a full meal and never remain too long in the water. Leave immediately if there is the slightest feeling of chilliness. Later, germ theory emerged. This is the idea that microscopic organisms, not miasmas, cause certain diseases. Ladies were advised to use skirt lifters to lift their hems off the ground as to not track germs into the home. They believe things like typhoid, tuberculosis, or flu spread this way. They do not, but if you want to see an ad campaign promoting this, I've posted that on my social media accounts. I will leave you with this last bit of advice for preventing flu, which simply states, don't worry, keep your feet warm. Mary Mallon was born in 1869 in Cookstown, County Tyrone in Ireland. This was one of the poorest regions of Ireland, and during the years that Mary was growing up were particularly dark days. There was famine every year. Her diet would have been primarily potatoes. They didn't really have any plates or forks. I mean, what for? There was no food to eat. Things were pretty grim and bleak. When Mary is 14 in 1883, she immigrates alone to America. She arrives in New York City, where she lives with her aunt and uncle. Her aunt and her uncle died, and while she never shared much information about her past, she always refers to herself as being all alone. She was always alone. 
Like many Irish immigrants, she likely found work as a domestic servant, cleaning, doing laundry, and so on, until she somehow, over time, clawed her way up to the station of Cook. Cook is one of the highest, if not the highest, station in the pecking order of servants in these wealthy households. And in a middle to upper class home, there could be about 20 or so servants employed. So the cook didn't just cook the food, they managed and stocked the kitchen, controlled and organized serving. And she wasn't cooking like grilled cheese in the homes Mary worked in. The expectations would have been to execute the latest trends from French and European cuisines, in addition to German and English American fare. Where did a poor Irish woman learn this? It wasn't by luck. It was by sheer will and talent. She worked for a number of wealthy families. She must have been good at what she did. Now, we can assume she didn't just start out cooking in wealthy homes. She must have spent some amount of time making a name for herself, cooking in other places before she could land these jobs. So we can never really be sure what happened before. But by 1907, when she's 38 years old, she's developed a bit of a pattern. She will land a job as a cook in one of these affluent homes, and shortly thereafter, sometimes only within a matter of weeks, other servants or members of the household would come down with typhoid fever, and almost immediately, Mary would leave. Between the years of 1900 and 1907, this happened for seven of the eight families Mary worked for. Now, typhoid fever is no joke. The incubation period for typhoid, meaning how long between when you get infected versus when the symptoms start appearing, is about 10 to 14 days. So symptoms start out mild and just get worse and worse. The initial symptom is a fever that never subsides. It just goes up and up and up, reaching nearly as high as 105 degrees. You can expect a ripping headache, weakness, fatigue, muscle aches, a dry cough, loss of appetite, Stomach symptoms like pain, swelling, and diarrhea or constipation. You may develop a rash on your torso. These symptoms would develop over a period of about two weeks. Later symptoms include delirium and what is known as the typhoid state, where a person is unable to do anything except lay completely still, eyes half open, just exhausted and completely out of it. This stage of the disease can last for about a week, and if you survive this, your symptoms will slowly begin to subside and you will hopefully start to make a full recovery. Unless, of course, your body doesn't entirely fight the infection and the symptoms return and you can get typhoid all over again, which can happen for up to two weeks after the fever initially disappears. Yikes. So this is what Mary sees over and over again in the home she works for. Now, as I mentioned, we can only speculate what she was up to prior to 1900, but we do know her history from there forward. In 1900, she worked in Mamoranek, New York, where within two weeks of beginning her employment, it's known that residents of the house contracted typhoid fever. In 1901, she moved to a home in Manhattan where it's reported members of the family and staff developed a sickness with fevers and diarrhea. One person in that home died. She left there and went to work in another affluent home where seven of the eight people in that house became sick. In 1904, she was hired by a wealthy lawyer named Henry Gilsey. Here, the servants lived in their own separate house. Mary was there a week when the laundress came down with typhoid, which spread to four more of the seven servants. The blame for that one was pinned on the laundress, though it was never proven, and Mary immediately showed herself out. In Tuxedo Park, New York, she was hired by George Kessler, where two weeks later the laundress came down with typhoid and was admitted to St. Joseph's Medical Center, where her case was the first case of typhoid seen in a long while. 
1906, Mary takes a position working in the summer home in Oyster Bay on Long Island for the Warren family. That summer, six of the 11 people in the family come down with typhoid. Again, right away, Mary leaves. And in 1907, Mary is gainfully employed with the Bowen family on Park Avenue in New York City, where the maid and the Bowen's daughter are stricken with typhoid. The daughter succumbs to the disease, and shortly after, the nurse who had been taking care of her also comes down with typhoid. So we never get an explanation as to why Mary always seems to jump ship immediately after these outbreaks. It's possible she's like, oh, well, this place has typhoid in it. I'm getting out of here. Or maybe she has some sort of inkling that it might have something to do with her. Either way, she hasn't had a chance to move along from the Park Avenue home just yet when a man turns up at the servant's door asking for her. He's a slight build, bespectacled, nerdy-looking fellow, and he is talking crazy. He comes into her kitchen where she's working. He says, I've been trying to track you down. You are making people sick. You are spreading typhoid fever. It happens when you go to the bathroom and you don't wash your hands, and I need samples of your urine, feces, and blood. And Mary is like, what? I'm sorry. You know what? Get out. And reportedly, she picks up a meat fork, points it at this man, and runs him out of her kitchen. Now, Mary does not know yet who this man is, but you and I know, or rather you're about to know, because I'm about to tell you, that his name is George Soper. George Soper actually first entered her timeline back when Mary was working for the Warren family several months prior in the summer house in Oyster Bay. After the typhoid outbreak in the house, local officials had been out to the home to try to determine the source of the outbreak. By this time, it was known that typhoid was caused by bacteria found in fecal matter that gets into food and water. So officials on Long Island investigate all the usual suspects for this contamination, and they find nothing. The owner of the house, who only rents it out for the summer, is pretty concerned that if he doesn't get to the bottom of this, he won't be able to rent out his big fancy summer home to the rich city folk. And he starts asking around to see if anyone has any ideas that can help him out. And he is directed to George Soper. George Soper is a sanitation engineer, which as far as I can tell essentially means he's the health inspector. He apparently has had some experience diagnosing the root cause of other typhoid outbreaks in the past, so the landlord of the Oyster Bay house hires him to help him out too. So Soper takes a trip out to Long Island and he starts by reviewing and double-checking the findings of the previous investigators. And just like them, he finds nothing. And the trail is kind of going cold until he learns that partway through the summer, the family, for whatever reason, brought in a new cook. And three weeks after the typhoid outbreak began, the cook up and left without any notice, an explanation, and no one knows where she's gone. Obviously, it's our girl Mary. So we know that cooking food and not washing one's hands can be particularly problematic, but the heating process usually destroys a lot of germs that can make us sick. But in Mary's case, one of her specialties was peach ice cream, where she would chop fresh peaches to the consistency of almost a puree, scooping as much juice back into the bowl as possible with her bare hands. Sounds delicious, also terrifying. So Soper checks with the employment agencies and references that help place her in the Oyster Bay home, and they don't know where she is. But this is where he uncovers her employment history for about the past 8 to 10 years that we talked about and discovers that 7 out of the 8 homes she was known to work in had outbreaks of typhoid. So to Soper's mind, Mary was a criminal that was on the run. 
He would go on to call her a, quote, proven menace to society and stated that under suitable conditions, Mary might precipitate a great epidemic. You can well imagine what havoc she would have wrought if her work had taken her to poor families. So while he's certain that this Mary Mallon is the source of these outbreaks, he can't for his life find her until he hears about the typhoid cases in the Park Avenue home of the Bowen family and confronts her in her kitchen. So Soper really wants to be the white knight that rides in and saves the city from the danger that is Mary Mallon, but his downfall is that he doesn't seem like a really empathetic guy. He seemed genuinely confused as to why dropping in on her unannounced at her place of employment lobbying accusations of spreading typhoid and demanding samples of her bodily fluids didn't go over super well. So what is his next move? He stalks her. He hides outside the Park Avenue house and follows her home from work and learns that she seems to be staying on the top floor of a seedy looking rooming house and she appears to be sharing living quarters with a man. Now if you were thinking he was going to wait outside her building now and confront her there, you'd be wrong. He takes it a step further and he starts tailing the man that she's living with. So this man Mary is living with doesn't appear to really hold down a job of his own. He may have worked at the rooming house in some capacity, and he spends most of his time drinking at a saloon down the street from the rooming house. Soper sidles up to Mary's gentleman friend at the bar and just starts chatting him up, buying his drinks. He learns his name is Brehoff and somehow talks him into showing him the apartment where he and Mary live. Soper describes it as a place of dirt and disorder and adds that he should not care to see another like it. And I mean, it probably was dirty, but that's what working class accommodations were like then. The city was overcrowded and most people were poor. So Brehoff advises Soper of Mary's schedule and he makes arrangements to be waiting at the top of Mary's stairs outside of Mary's apartment one night when she gets home. He brings one of his buddies this time, a former assistant who is actually a doctor, but it's most likely he just had him tag along for no other reason other than he's afraid of her. And you can imagine this encounter goes about as well as the last. Mary is irate. She swears up and down. She's never had typhoid, never been sick a day in her life. What more? Typhoid is everywhere. What grounds does he have to accuse her of spreading it? After all, look at her. She's standing right there, the picture of health. Soper sees he's not making any progress, and he sees himself out with Mary screaming at his back the entire way down the stairs. It's at this point that Soper kind of loses his patience with Mary, and after all, he has no official power to make her cooperate. So he reports Mary to the commissioner of the New York City Health Department. Soper reports, I called Mary a living human culture tube and chronic typhoid germ producer. I said she was a proved menace to the community. It was impossible to deal with her in a reasonable and peaceful way, and if the department meant to examine her, it must be prepared to use force and plenty of it. So the health department does respond. They have amongst their ranks a female doctor, Dr. Josephine Baker, that they send to where Mary is working at the Park Avenue home. Sending a woman was probably the only compassionate thought the health department officials had in this whole matter. Like, They could imagine how the uppity man pretending to be a doctor, creeping around, asking for her bodily fluids, might be sending the wrong message. But Mary doesn't respond any better to Dr. Baker. She slams the door in her face. The next day, the situation escalates. Dr. Baker and a team of policemen roll up to the Park Avenue home in a horse-drawn Department of Health ambulance, and officers are stationed at each exit of the house. Dr. Baker, with another officer at her side, 
knock, knock, knock on the door. Mary opens it, sees Dr. Baker's face, and immediately tries to slam it shut. But the officer jams his foot in the door, and Mary runs for it. She tears through the house with Dr. Baker and the officer after her, but they lose sight of her. Anyone they come across, they ask if Mary Mallon came through here, but no one will utter a peep. They're not giving up one of their own. Dr. Baker and the police search the house high and low when they spot footprints in the snow leading over the fence to the neighboring yard and call in a fifth police officer to help with the search. But she's in the wind. They can't find her. Three hours in and ready to call it off, someone notices a tiny bit of gingham fabric caught in the door of an outdoor water closet, which is an outhouse, essentially. Ash cans have been piled against the door from the outside. So the same as no one in the house would give her up, someone helped her hide there. They open the door and Mary flies out of it like a shot. And to quote Dr. Baker, she's fighting and cursing, both of which she could do with appalling efficiency and vigor. Dr. Baker tries to explain they only want her to come in for some tests, then she could go home, but Mary isn't having it. She does not relent. She fights, swears, kicks, and it takes five police officers plus Dr. Baker to wrangle her into the waiting ambulance, where she continues to fight and scream all the way to the hospital. And Mary, I salute you. You know, from Mary's point of view, she was just trying to live her life, not bothering anybody, looking out for number one, meaning herself because no one else is going to. And she doubled down over and over again that she had never had typhoid in her life. It's possible she did recall having and recovering from typhoid and just committed to the lie because after all, she is walking around symptom-free. How could she be spreading it? But the most popular theories are that she luckily contracted such a mild case, she didn't even know she had typhoid, Or Wikipedia did cite a few sources that state she was born a carrier because her mother was infected with typhoid during her pregnancy with Mary. So they put an entirely well woman in a room in Willard Parker Hospital, where she is regarded as, quote, dangerous and unreliable, and it is noted that she might try to escape if given the chance. The two heads of the bacteriological lab are put in charge of Mary's case, and they basically hold her there until she submits samples of stool, urine, and blood for testing. And to George Soper's pure delight, the results of her first samples reveal a pure culture of typhoid. And so, on March 19, 1907, Mary is ordered to quarantine at Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island. North Brother Island is a 20-acre island in the East River, about 2,500 feet west of Rikers Island. You can see the city from its shores. Riverside Hospital was initially established to treat smallpox patients and later on other quarantinable diseases such as typhoid, tuberculosis, and polio. Mary was housed in a small bungalow that included a living room, kitchen, and bathroom, outfitted with gas, electric, and modern plumbing. They also gave her a dog, a little Jack Russell Terrier or something. That's nice, I guess. Her food was brought to her where she would prepare it by herself and she ate alone. She was forced to give samples for lab tests three times a week. Sometimes the results were positive for typhoid. Sometimes they were negative, meaning her ability to transmit typhoid were intermittent at best. Now, the treatment prescribed by doctors sounds more like throwing spaghetti against a wall to see what sticks versus medical care. 
In Mary's case, the typhoid bacteria seemed to originate from her gallbladder. So gallbladder removal was recommended, but as we know, any surgery can be dangerous, especially Victorian-era surgery, so Mary outright refused to entertain their suggestion of surgery. She was given neurotropin, which is a strong drug made from the combination of ammonia and formaldehyde used to combat typhoid when it's present in urine, which was not Mary's case. They just thought they'd give it a try. She was given some medicine described as an anti-autotox plus brewer's yeast combined with colonic irrigation to cleanse her intestinal tract. This had no effect. Rightfully so, Mary had little faith in these doctors trying to cure her. She wrote in a letter, when I came to the department, they said the germs were in my intestinal tract. Later, another said they were in the muscles of my bowels, and laterly, they thought of the gallbladder. As time wore on, they collected samples less routinely. At one point, following the initial quarantine, she had a breakdown that resulted in the paralysis of her left eye, but was denied care from an eye doctor. It seems like these doctors were more interested in studying her lab tests than caring for her as a person. She does get a lawyer at some point, though it's unlikely she paid for them herself. It's rumored that William Randolph Hearst, the well-known newspaper publisher, funded the legal fees. Apparently, this was a thing he was knowing to do from time to time to continuously churn up stories and sell papers. Through this, she arranged to send separate samples to an independent lab in the mainland who never found a trace of typhoid. Because there was none, or because the method of transport reduced the quality of the samples, we can't say. But that's what they say they found. She also tried to sue the New York Health Department, but they weren't going to let that happen. Her complaint was denied, and the case was closed by the New York Supreme Court. George Soper, by the way, did get to publish his article about Mary in the Journal of American Metal Association. This is what garnered most of the media attention that nicknamed her Typhoid Mary. So we are about 15, 20 minutes into recording this. I'm on page 10 or so of my notes. And if you're listening to this wondering, hey, I thought this was a true crime podcast. Has there been a crime here? You, my friend, have not missed a thing. Though Mary is being held indefinitely in near isolation against her will, she was never charged with a damn thing. Now, this point does not escape some doctors and officials. Mary does have some supporters who have a problem with the indefinite quarantining of an otherwise well woman. Many believe the right thing to do is just to educate asymptomatic carriers about how they should adjust their lifestyles, meaning wash your hands, and restrict them from working in occupations where they can easily spread disease to others, and off they go, reintegrated into society. Because by this time, they're discovering other asymptomatic carriers, and they are not living in government-imposed quarantine. In fact, within the next four years, health officials agree that at least 3% of those who get infected with typhoid become carriers after recovery. Statistically, that means there are literally thousands of asymptomatic carriers in New York City alone. So within the first year of Mary's quarantine, they ask her if she'll agree to no longer work as a cook, and they can let her go but that is her livelihood, and she refuses to agree to that. Then at one point, they're like, listen, just go say you'll live with your sister in Connecticut. Knowing full well that she has no sister in Connecticut, they just want her to agree to leave the state and be someone else's problem. But refusing to live a lie, Mary again will not cooperate. But after nearly three years of living on North Brother Island, Mary agrees she is, quote, 
prepared to change her occupation and would give assurance by affidavit that she would, upon her release, take such hygienic precautions as would protect those with whom she came in contact from infection. And on February 19, 1910, she was released from quarantine and returned to the mainland. Hooray! They set her up with a job as a laundress, which pays way less than a cook, and she is required to check in with the health department periodically. For a while, Mary follows her rules, but she knows her worth and one day makes the decision to change her name and look for work as a cook again. Without references or prior experience to show under her alias, though, agencies won't place her in homes of affluent families as they did before, so she starts working in restaurants and hotels and such. The health department tries to track her down, but she changes jobs and her name frequently, and they can't find her. What happens next is arguably kind of a coincidence. In 1915, there is a typhoid outbreak at the Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City. About 25 people become sick, and two people die. At the time, there was a blind typhoid vaccine test being conducted at the hospital using the hospital's own doctors, nurses, and staff. Several of the doctors were actually afflicted by the outbreak. Mary, under an alias, is working in the hospital's kitchens. All of the staff were required to submit urine and stool samples at the time, with technicians actively looking for positive results of typhoid. Mary knows how this goes. Her own sample comes back positive for trace amounts of typhoid, and she is in the wind. She leaves. Now, whether she caused it or it was a result of vaccine trials or it was happening anyway, no one can say, but either way, her true identity comes out, she's violated the conditions of her release, and they have to bring her in. George Soper and even Dr. Josephine Baker try to insert themselves into the story, claiming credit for finding her working in the hospital. But the process of tracking typhoid carriers was old hat by now, and it's likely they're just both trying to ride the coattails of the famous typhoid Mary case. So officials learn Mary is staying with a friend in Queens. They didn't go in with quite the same forces last time, but at least three police officers turn up to the Queens apartment and ring the front bell. There's no answer. They try again. They wait. Again, no answer. Like something out of a cartoon, they find a ladder which they put up to the second story window where a dog jumps up. So they climb back down and they find like some steak or meat from the butcher or something to distract the dog and they enter the apartment through the window. They search around the rooms one by one until they find Mary Mallon hiding, crouched on the floor of the bathroom. This time, now 48 years old, she does not fight. She goes quietly. She's returned to the very same bungalow on North Brother Island where she lived for another 23 years. In the last 23 years she spent on the island, she was allowed to take day trips to the mainland. She was given a job as a lab technician until she suffered a stroke in 1932 that left half of her body paralyzed, after which she remained in the hospital. She died in 1938 of pneumonia at the age of 69 and is buried in St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx. In the end, she's presumed to have infected 51 people, three of which died. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's a true crime podcast. Where is the crime? Until the day she died, Mary maintained that she was never sick with typhoid fever and that she never got anybody else sick. She did flee most of her positions after a typhoid outbreak, so that sounds a little guilty. And she full well knew she was not supposed to return to cooking for her livelihood, but she changed her name and did it anyway. 
But many agree she never really understood the concept of an asymptomatic carrier. I mean, a lot of people didn't. Germ theory was still a pretty new concept. And again, Mary was never charged, indicted, tried, or convicted of any crime. But that didn't stop officials, doctors, the media, and public opinion from essentially calling her a murderer. A 1909 article that appeared in the New York American shows an illustration of her straight up dropping skulls into a pan, cooking up some death, as it were, with the title, The Most Harmless Yet Most Dangerous Woman in America. The article itself does state that at the time, there were approximately 50 people known to be asymptomatic typhoid carriers in the country, 15 of which were only discovered in the past two years, and none of them were in this indefinite quarantine Lake Mary. So... The other side of the coin we have to discuss is a crime of ethics on the part of the government. Surprise. Legal precedent states that the health department, to accomplish and prevent the spread of contagious or infected disease, persons may be seized and restrained of their liberty in order to leave the state, private houses may be converted into hospitals and made subject to hospital regulations, buildings may be torn down, infected articles seized and destroyed, and many other things done which under ordinary circumstances will be considered gross outrage on the rights of persons and property. Well then, still, there were many other typhoid carriers out there going about their own business, living their own lives. The arguments made for why Mary was treated so differently are usually because she was the first, because she was obstinate about it, But at its crux, it's widely regarded to be an issue of classism and sexism. The fact of the matter is that Mary was a working-class Irish woman and was thought inferior. Typhoid outbreaks, by the way, became fewer and fewer thanks to sanitary reform. We discovered antibiotics, which are effective at treating it. And there is a vaccine now, which is still recommended if you're traveling to parts of the world where food and water supply may be unclean. Just to give you all peace of mind about that. But I'm curious to know what all of you think about our friend Mary Mallon. Was she the villain or the victim? If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a good night for a murder, you can let me know there. Plus, see some photos of Mary, including one of her, like, put to bed like a patient in recovery in the Riverside Hospital when she's actually completely well. And the look on her face is just daggers. I have the illustration I mentioned depicting her cooking skulls in a pan the bungalow she quarantined in, and a few other photos. You can also see the photos on the episode blog and all source links on my website at agoodnightforamurder.com. This includes a link to what I thought was an interesting documentary you can watch on YouTube about Typhoid Mary. And also, Anthony Bourdain wrote a book about Mary Mallon, which I read. All that is linked to you on the website. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier patrons for this episode are some stories about other famous typhoid carriers. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also, follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.